For those of you who don't know me, I'm Phil. I'm more usually found playing bass or fiddling with things at the back. And most importantly of all, as has already been alluded to, I usually heckle whoever's preaching. So today, today could be interesting, as we say in these parts. So I'm continuing in the um, series in Acts. Um, this is a passage we'll be looking at that's got lots of interesting and meaty stuff in it. But uh, I'm afraid today I felt the Holy Spirit constrain me to just pick out one or two points. So those who are theology students or those who like to get into detail, I'm afraid you're just going to have to cope. <laughs> so I, while I was preparing or panicking, um, depending on how holy you're feeling, or perhaps <laughs> preparing, which I think is a, a fine sermon writing tool, um, I, I was wondering if I was doing the right thing. Um, and so I decided to not do any more and switch off. So because I'm really boring and old, I listened to some H.G. Wells. Fine writer. Anyway, so um, I was listening to the first men in the moon, um, and this particular phrase jumped out at me. The best thing I can do, therefore, is, I think, to give my impressions in my own inexact language without any attempt to wear a garment of knowledge to which I have no claim. For some reason, it felt like that was me. So here I am. I've taken the cloak off. It's lovely, absolutely. These are just my underclothes. <laughs> lovely. As I'm rather thick, then God decided to hammer the point home a little further. My lovely wife, who's left, not because she doesn't agree with the sermon, but because she's taking our daughter dancing. Um, she put it in her own particular words. Um, Say what God has told you, and don't bother trying to make it fancy. So I'm operating under instructions. <laughs> um, if you do want to get into details, the three particular resources I commend to you. Um, the first one is John Stott's The Message of Acts. The second one is N.T. Wright's Acts for Everyone. And then finally, David Williams. Uh, the first two I found particularly helpful. But unfortunately, as I say, God's not let me nick lots from those smart people and use them. Alas. Um, and because I thought I was going to struggle, I called in the professionals. So Toby and Carol, if you'd like to come up, we've got some heavy-hitting readers today. Uh, we, we've got two mics. Um, no, no, no. Not heavy in terms of gravitas and stage presence. Uh, <laughs> So we're also using a slightly unusual translation. Um, so I'd encourage you, if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you just to listen this first time, and then you can look at your own translation when we go through it again. Did you want funny voices or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Take it away, the Fosters. <laughs> so Paul found himself alone for some time in Athens. He would walk through the city feeling deeply frustrated about the abundance of idols there. As in the previous cities, he went to the synagogue. Once again, he engaged in debate about Jesus with both ethnic Jews and devout Greek-born converts to Judaism. He would even wander around in the marketplace speaking with anyone he happened to meet. Eventually, he got into a debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Some were dismissive from the start. What's this fast talker trying to pitch? 
He seems to be advocating the gods of distant lands. They said this because of what Paul had been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. This stirred their curiosity because the favorite pastime of Athenians, including foreigners who settled there, was conversation about new and unusual ideas. So they brought him to the rocky outcrop known as the Areopagus, where Athens intellectuals regularly gathered for debate. Sounds like pub church. And, <laughs> and they invited him to speak. May we understand this new teaching of yours? It is intriguingly unusual. We would love to know its meaning. Athenians, as I've walked your streets, I've observed your strong and diverse religious ethos. You truly are a religious people. I've stopped again and again to examine carefully the religious statues and inscriptions that fill your city. On one such altar, I read this inscription, to an unknown god. I'm not here to tell you about a strange foreign deity, but about this one whom you already worship, though without full knowledge. This is the God who made the universe and all it contains. The God who is the king of all heaven and all earth. It would be illogical to assume that a God of this magnitude could possibly be contained in any man-made structure, no matter how majestic. Nor would it be logical to think that this God would need human beings to provide him with food and shelter. After all, he himself would have given to humans everything they need, life, breath, food, shelter, and so on. This God made us in all our diversity from one original person, allowing each culture to have its own time to develop, giving each its own place to live and thrive in its distinct ways. His purpose in all this was that people of every culture and religion would search for this ultimate God, grope for him in the darkness, as it were, hoping to find him. Yet in truth, God is not far from any of us. For you know the saying, we live in God, we move in God, we exist in God. And as another one says, we are indeed God's children. Since this is true, since we are indeed offspring of God's creative act, we shouldn't think of the deity as our own artifact, something made with our own hands. As if this great universal ultimate creator was simply a combination of elements like gold and silver and stone. No, God has patiently tolerated this kind of ignorance in the past, but now he says it's time to rethink our lives and reject these unenlightened assumptions. He had fixed a day of accountability when the whole world will be justly evaluated by a new and higher standard, not by a statue, but by a living man. God selected this man and made him credible to all by raising him from the dead. Oops, sorry, shall I start again? When they heard that last phrase about resurrection from the dead, some shook their heads and scoffed, but others were even more curious. We would like you to come and speak to us again. Paul left at that point, but some people followed him and came to faith, including one from Oropagus named Dionysius, a prominent woman named Damaris, and others. Marvellous. Thank you both. Oh, I think so. I think I might have um, made a mistake there. I should have got somebody who's very boring with a monotonic voice to do the reading, but hey-ho, we'll just have to muddle through. So if you're feeling sleepy, now is the time to drift off. 
So um, jumping back to the start of the passage, Paul was in Athens. He was waiting for his pals. He was, as they say in these parts, hanging a boot. Um, and he probably knew quite a lot about Greece, about the culture, about the history, but he didn't assume he knew it all. He went out, spoke to people, had a good look and a good think. Um, he started off in the synagogue, as we've seen before, went to the marketplace, and the end of verse 17, speaking with anyone he happened to meet. Sounds a bit like he was just grabbing people and talking to them. Um, and then in verse 18, he got into debate with different philosophical schools. Uh, it's all very interesting, and what those schools stand for is very interesting, but I can't talk about it now, so you'll have to look it up. Um, all we need to know is that they tried to understand Paul's message through their own lens, through their own culture, through their own experience. And the second half of 18, they got confused. Um, so they thought he might have been talking about um, Jesus and some other god uh, who is called Anastasis, so the resurrection. So they tried to put Paul's message into a frame that they understood, and they got confused. So as an aside, how did Paul get this good? You know, he rocks up in a foreign city, he looks different, he sounds different, and yet he's still able to talk to people about Jesus. This was the guy who a few years earlier was killing Christians and not saying very much apart from stone him. <laughs> how did he get so good at it? You might ask, how did David get so good at writing psalms? This reminds me of the old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, which was performed wonderfully in the Father Ted, but unfortunately, again, I'm operating under instruction and I'm not allowed to do a Father Ted impression. Ah, <laughs> you will, you will. <laughs> um, so the punchline, jumping to the punchline, the answer, of course, is practice. You get to Carnegie Hall by practice. Um, so, <laughs> absolutely. David spent many hours creating songs of worship to God. He was crafting the words and also the music, trying it out on his woolly critics, working out what they thought was good and what was bad. <laughs> Thank you. I just thought I'd do a Toby there. And um, then he refined things. And similarly, Paul had spent years back in Tarsus um, and then obviously on his missionary journeys refining things. He had less sheep and less music, but he was crafting how he was doing it. So I think at this point it's fair to point out that although we call spiritual gifts gifts, I think it's sometimes a misnomer. Um, we should be thinking about spiritual practice. And if you're not in a home group, you should join one because that's the perfect place to practice. You get to try things out with friends, and if it goes wrong, we can all have a good laugh together and nobody gets hurt. Um, so if you're not in a home group, I'd encourage you to join it. Back to the passage, Paul inspired enough interest, even though there was a bit of confusion, that he got invited to the Areopagus. This was a big deal. This was where the intellectual big dogs hung out, sniffing each other's um, theories. <laughs> so Paul got an invite there. As an outsider, it's a big deal. Verse 22, consider how Paul starts. He could have started in a number of places, but he started from a place of respect. He connects with their culture. And consider how startling this would have been. Jews would not tend to speak respectfully or positively about a pagan culture. They certainly wouldn't go wandering around looking at statues, which in their eyes were idols. 
And yet Paul did all this. He was not only opening a way to the Athenians, but he was also um, at risk of alienating, easy for you to say, and offending any Jewish listeners. So he was walking a real tight line here between keeping true to his, his background, but also helping people to understand what he was saying. And we should do the same. We should seek to help people to get closer to God, not immediately tell them why they've been excluded or how they've been excluded by culture, religion, or anything else. So this reminds me of uh, Paul, what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. I think it was alluded to a few weeks ago, but we're going to jump back to that passage as well. Even though no one except Jesus owns me, I have become a slave by my own free will to everyone in hopes that I would gather more believers. When around Jews, I emphasize my Jewishness in order to win them over. When around those who live strictly under the law, I live by its regulations, even though I have a different perspective on the law now in order to win them over. In the same way, I've made a life outside the law to gather those who live outside the law, although I personally abide by and live under the anointed one's law. I've been broken, lost, depressed, oppressed, and weak, that I might find favor and gain the weak. I'm flexible, adaptable, and able to do and be whatever is needed for all kinds of people, so that in the end I can use every means at my disposal to offer them salvation. I do it all for the gospel and for the hope that I might participate with everyone who is blessed by the proclamation of the good news. So Paul wasn't satisfied to play it safe, to stay in his own culture, to be a nice Christian. He was willing to take risks and to engage with other cultures. So jumping back to Acts, Paul continues, not just by memorizing some, um, some trite message and then repeating it, but he speaks in a way that his, his listeners would understand. Um, if we jump to verses 26 to 27, I think these are the key to the passage. Uh, quoting from verse 27, I think it is. His purpose in all this was that people of every culture and religion would search for this ultimate God, grope for him in the darkness, as it were, hoping to find him. Yet in truth, God is not far from any of us. Remember, this was Paul speaking in the middle of ancient Greece in Athens, a city full of gods, idolatry, sexual immorality, all sorts of depravity, which to Jewish eyes would have seen horrific. And yet he was gracious enough to frame it in this way. It's a good example of understanding and recognizing different cultures without fear. Compare this with some of the language we've had in the political scene here in the UK, which has not been helpful at all, or even in the US or other parts of the world. You know, we should be talking about people and loving people, not polarizing groups into them and us. And remember, this came from Paul. He was a Jew. He'd have been taught from birth that he was part of the people of God. He was part of the promised race. He now understood that God's wider purpose had been fulfilled through the Jews in the person of Jesus. And yet he was willing to turn his back, as it were, on that background and include himself in a group with people who others in the early church would have probably said were evil and pagan. So he was willing to no longer tie his identity with his Jewish past. He was willing to say, no, I stand with these other folks. Um, and again, an aside, the language of fear towards people of other faiths has no place, I believe, in God's kingdom. Um, if you look back in history, you could argue that the Crusades set back the course of Christianity by many hundreds of years. Certainly, they caused long-term damage to any meaningful ministry to, to Muslims. Um, and 
again, not while I was preparing, but just for fun, I was reading a long um, and interesting history of the Knights Templar, right from the beginnings through to the brutal ends. Um, through it all, it was apparent that although some people might have naively assumed they were doing God's work, there were an awful lot of um, greed, power, and political gain um, being played out through their naivety. Um, and I think it's, it, it's, um, it behoves us to learn from history and not make the same mistakes again. You know, we can dress things up as doing God's work, but we should look under the covers. Now, in verse 28, um, there's another example of how far Paul was willing to go. Here he, quote, he quotes from two Greek poets, and the second of these, Aratus, wrote a poem about Zeus. So he was using a poem about a pagan god, which elsewhere in the New Testament he, he compares to demonic worship. He used this poem to point out truths about the one eternal God. You know, even now that sounds almost heretical. To any Jewish hearers, that would have been absolute anathema. It was really quite shocking. But again, he did it so that those who were listening had a chance to engage. He did it so he wasn't putting barriers up. Um, and then uh, on the next couple of verses, if, if you thought Paul was just selling out and uh, giving a message where all paths lead to God, um, he just happens to mention eternal judgment, resurrection, oh, and eternal life. And um, at this point, it's probably worth pointing out that uh, Luke was very good at taking an awful lot of words, because we know Paul used an awful lot of words, and condensing them right down. So this is just the synopsis. Um, and in fact, if he talked about resurrection, it makes sense that he probably talked about death as well, and probably death on a cross. And I'm glad to say that N.T. Wright agrees with me. So there we go. <laughs> um, we're not going to get into more detail there, but just to, to make the point again, Paul framed his message in a way that his audience would understand, even though it contained stuff that was difficult. Now, at the point where he mentioned the resurrection, you'll see in verse 32, some sneered, or as J.B. Phillips translates it, they just burst out laughing. They were mocking him. And yet, on the other hand, some believed. So I find it interesting that Paul, at this point, he walked away. He was an intellectual, he loved debate, he, but he didn't schedule another round of argument and counter-argument. He didn't schedule another public debate. Um, he didn't seem to have to win the argument. Instead, he just walked away and let people come and find him. And I think, again, that's a good message to us. We don't win many people to Jesus by arguing at them. In fact, we don't win many friends at all doing that. <laughs> so it's, it's a good thing to walk away sometimes. So we've rattled through the passage. Um, I wanted to focus mostly on application. So we're going to look at two areas of application. The first one is corporate. So this is us. Um, how does it apply to us today? Uh, one of the slightly contentious phrases that used to be used more commonly in this fellowship, uh, which I think is relevant, is it is better to be gracious than right. I don't know who came up with it, but I heard Toby and Carol say it, so I'm blaming them. Um, I think it's a helpful challenge to people like me who like to be right and like to argue and like to win arguments. <laughs> um, and uh, I know this is wrong. Even, you know, Paul writes about it in Titus 3.9. Um, Mind you steer clear of stupid arguments, genealogies, controversies and quarrels over the law. They settle nothing and lead nowhere. So it's in black and white, and yet I still do it. 
And for any theology students, I can only apologise. You can take it up with Paul. Um, so Paul was highly educated, and part of that education probably included oratory, debate, rhetoric. You know, he was good at this stuff. And yet, he was gracious. He didn't try and persuade or browbeat people. He just walked away. And he used language that some would despise in order to give others a chance to hear. So the challenge for this small expression of God's church, how diverse are we willing to be to give others a chance to feel at home? I realize I'm the worst person to be saying this. I'm white, male, middle class, and educated. But hey, God gave me the message, so I'm giving it to you. And it does apply at least equally to me. Um, I do think it's a challenge not just for this community, but maybe wider for the church in St. Andrews as a whole. Because if you look around, if you're an intellectual, if you're highly educated, if you like um, reading, then there's plenty of really good churches for you. But how about if you never managed to learn to read properly, if you dropped out of school really early, if you're not academic, if you find it all confusing? There's not many churches that would seem to be so welcoming. So that was the first challenge. Um, and picking up on Jeremy's sermon of the 13th of October, are we in danger of making our brother stumble not by what we eat, but by the language we use, the intellectualism of our arguments, the assumptions we make about the culture and experience, or even... And this is a point for me, the length of the sermon. Um, I'm not talking about missing out parts of God's truth, but I am saying we should make it accessible. Um, I know that all too often I try and use flowery language to demonstrate how clever I am, rather than actually using language that somebody understands. So, there we go. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just going to skip that. Um, <laughs> I should be fair, it's not just a problem for our church. Okay, this is a problem in society as a whole. I was reading a couple of papers in the um, psychology literature, um, and in the last 10 years there's been a growing awareness and appreciation that the majority of studies in psychology and social sciences, some uh, reports suggest up to 80% of participants, are weird. Uh, and those who don't know the acronym, that's Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. So we have an inherent bias in an awful lot of the academic literature that we take grand and sweeping statements from to say all people tend to behave like this or all people tend to think that way. And I think we've just imbibed some of that bias. So it's just an, a, a thing to be aware of. Um, it also gives us a new tagline for our church, which I'll share with you now. The Kingdom Vineyard, some of us are weird, but you don't have to be. <laughs> I think I should work in marketing. It's a triumph. Um, how about our social gatherings? Just um, as another thing. Uh, are we causing problems for people because we include alcohol? Shock horror. We're called the vineyard. You can't say that. Um, but it's just something that God brought to my mind. It's a great thing to do, and it's a really good way of breaking down barriers. And I was at a whiskey tasting that Jack organized on Friday night, which is a really good way of getting blokes to talk to each other, even if most of what was said was complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> at least by the end of the night. Um, but although it's a, it, it can be a helpful thing to do, if somebody's struggling with alcohol addiction, it's definitely not a helpful thing to do. Or if somebody comes from a background where Christians just don't drink, 
and they really struggle to identify with this. So again, it's something we should be aware of. Now, um, it's quite easy, maybe it's just me, but when I hear a corporate application, I tend to look around the room and say, that applies to all of you, not to me. So we're now going to move to personal application. And looking back at that phrase again, it's better to be gracious than right. I should hold my hand up and say, I am rubbish at this. I like being right. I like to win arguments. But it's not a helpful default reaction. Uh, we should dare to be vulnerable and take off our Christian mask. And for some of you, that probably means that you share with your friends when you're struggling, not just the victories. Because in the past, some of our Christian talk has been victory despite the circumstance, and I think we need to be a bit more honest. Um, and for those who, like me, tend to fight rather than flight, so I tend to argue back, I tend to bring logical argument to bear, um, here's a thought from an unlikely source of spiritual wisdom. I give you Saitama, one punch man. <laughs> Any fans in the house? Oh, one. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Two. So, uh, it's a silly anime, but um, it was, I find it amusing, and it had this deep wisdom hidden in the middle of it. So when, when I have an argument with somebody or I have some conflict, what I tend to do is I go over and over it, analyze what I could have said and what I could have done, but then step to the future and say, in a hypoth hypothetical situation, how am I going to deal with X if they say this? How am I going to get my point across? And actually, I'm setting a precedent for an unhelpful reaction already. Um, so here's the wisdom of the theological source that you should all turn to now, One Punch Man. This is what he says. I'll leave tomorrow's problems to tomorrow's me. So if you are inclined to fight, to argue back, I give you that. Sometimes it's best just to leave it. <laughs> 